Well, good evening, LCM. Good evening. In preparation for these chapters, Nehemiah 9 and 10, we consulted the best Hebrew manuscripts. We cross-referenced the Greek Septuagint. We were able to triangulate between the Vulgate and the Masoretic text to validate various hypotheses that we hold. In the most curious of occurrences, an urban street poet's work, originally authored in 1970, lent us the perfect verbal expression that conveys the heart of the ancient Israelites in our text tonight. The poet was blind, but ironically spoke with vivid clarity regarding the position of the contrite human heart in the presence of God. His name was Stevie Wonder. Here is a selection of his poem, conveniently set to music for your benefit. Safely seated. The lyrics are important. 
Now you've just heard our blind poet's commentary on Nehemiah's chapter 9 and 10. We want to read to you the lyrics of his song in a more amplified version to see how he was writing about the themes in Nehemiah 9 and 10. Are you guys ready? Yeah. Starts out. Hey, hey, oh baby. Yeah. Like the fool, I went and stayed too long in Gentile captivity. Now I'm wondering if your love's still strong. Now many generations from Abraham. Ooh, baby, here I am. Signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. I wish to recommit myself to the existing covenant. Then that time I went and said goodbye. Now I'm back and not ashamed to cry. I know that my repentance is the key. Come on. Ooh, baby, here I am. Yeah. Signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. You know what? Let's get some interaction. Y'all want to do this with me? Yeah, yeah. When I say here I am, baby, you sing signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. Y'all ready? Yeah. Here I am, baby. Signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. Here I am, baby. Signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. You got the future in your hands. I'm at your mercy, but you can cause me to succeed. I've done a lot of foolish things that I really didn't mean. Yeah, yeah, didn't I, oh baby? I acknowledge my great sin. Seen a lot of things in this old world. When I touch them, they don't mean nothing, girl. Every pursuit outside of you has caused death. Ooh, baby, here I am. set my soul on fire that's why I, I that's why I know you're my heart's only desire oh, come on. I want to return to you in singleness of heart ooh baby here I am Sand, sealed, delivered. I'm yours. here I am baby you got the future in your hands Sand, sealed, delivered. I'm yours. here I am baby you got the future in your hands Sand, sealed, delivered. I'm yours. I've done a lot of foolish things that I really didn't mean. I could be a broken man, but here I am. In all of my admitted failure, I am relying on your faithfulness alone. Come on. With the future, you got the future, baby. Sand, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. Here I am, baby. Sand, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. Woo! Here I am, baby. Sand, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. chapter 3, verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Yeah. He has also set eternity in the human heart. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Our God has set eternity in the human heart. This is true even of lost and estranged human beings. You may be surprised to find out how often a lost man is accurately expressing his position before God. Even when he doesn't know, that is what he is doing. Yeah. The last part of this verse says, no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. This is so important. Tonight you will see the community of Israel beginning to grasp a portion of what God has done 
from their beginnings unto the end. It is even our hope that you guys yeah. may reassess what Adonai has done from your beginning yeah. until this point right oh, now. Yeah. And even unto the end. Amen. Come on. This evening we will interact with the multifaceted truth that the Torah is both good and spiritual. However, we are tragically flawed. Yeah. <clears throat> Listen to Romans 7, 14 through 15. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Uh. Every human being that is sincerely engaged with the righteous character of Adonai as revealed in the law eventually comes to the astounding truth that the problem is with us and not with God. Yeah. Yeah. This human problem is not a problem with the law. It is an illustration of the need for a supernatural human. Mm. Yeah. Paul continues the same train of thought in Romans 8, verses 3 through 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Mm who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Thanks, the law of God is perfect. Yeah. Humanity, though, is tragically flawed by the sinful nature. So God sent his own Son to set us an example, to empower us and to free us from the sinful nature, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In our chapters this evening, you will see the community of God coming to grips with the fact that they are the problem and not God. Yeah. Yeah. Furthermore, you will see them recommit to a covenant that they are already party to. This recommitment is instigated by a revival and a renewal of their understanding of their position before Adonai himself. Let's review a couple of statements from Psalm 119, who you're aware that we believe correctly, Ezra wrote. Yeah. yeah. Psalm 119... We're going to begin in verse 166. I hope for your salvation, O Lord. Yes. And, somebody say and. And. I do your command. Come on. Now, you should take note that this verse has two separate but equal facets. The first, the verse maintains the hope for Adonai's salvation. Secondly, the verse also expresses the desire to do Adonai's commandments. 2,000 years of preaching have set these two truths in opposition to one another. However, while that may be the issue for a select group of Judaizers in the first century, that is not the normative issue for most of the believing community for the majority of history. Sincere believers want to obey Adonai's command. Yes. And, say and, and, they must rely on Adonai to cure their own inability to keep the commands through the process of trusting Adonai. Amen. These two truths remain concurrent. The ending of Psalm 119 puts these thoughts very succinctly. We're going to read Psalm 119, 174 through 176. 174 says, I long for your salvation, O Lord, 
and your law is my delight. Notice again that longing for Adonai's salvation and delighting in the law are two concurrent truths. They are not at odds with one another. In fact, delighting in the law will only serve to cause you to long for the salvation of Adonai all the more. Somebody say amen. Amen. Let's continue to 175. Let my soul live and praise you and let your rules help me. Yeah. Every sincere believer that loves the law will come to the conclusion that you fall short of the character of God. Yeah. This is all this always engenders cries for mercy. Yeah. Nothing is wrong with the standards of God. Yeah. Something is wrong with us. Though. Right. The law helps us to understand this truth. More than that, it effectively leads us right to Christ. Yeah. Let's continue in verse 176. Come on. I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Yeah. Seek your servant. For I do not forget your commandments. So Psalm 119 ends with Israel as a lost sheep. And Israel is requesting that Adonai come to find them in their inability. And then finally is the statement that Israel will not be abandoned or forget the righteous decrees of God. Consider those statements as you interact with this New Testament verse. Our New Testament verse is Luke chapter 19, verses 8 through 10. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus is an Israelite that went astray. Yeah. He remembers the commands of God regarding restitution in Numbers chapter 5. But he wanted to go beyond the requirement of 120%. He actually voluntarily commits to 400%. Ooh, Jesus affirms that salvation has arrived for Zacchaeus because Jesus has come to seek and save that which was lost. The ministry of Jesus is not about lessening the standards of the Torah. It's about grace and empowerment to achieve the standards of Torah and beyond. Somebody say amen. Amen. Tonight. When? Tonight. Tonight. We will contemplate what we have signed our names in agreement to. We will look at the way in which the promise was sealed in blood. Finally, we will examine whether or not we have delivered on our covenantal commitment. All of these elements are present within Nehemiah 9 and 10. As always, we will be instructed by the recorded actions of our older brother Israel. Now, it's time to go to our old faithful. This will be the 17th time that you have seen this slide. But after tonight, we hope you'll see it in a new way. Let's look at this and work from left to right. You know that the Babylonian captivity lasted 70 years. And after the Babylonian captivity under Persian rule, Zerubbabel and Joshua, son of Jehozadak, began to rebuild the temple of God. 
God stirred their hearts to do so. It was him who authored it. But they became stagnant in their work. They had an inability to stay on task. And then Haggai and Zechariah showed up and their spirits were stirred again. And he who began the good work in them brought it to completion. This was like the reestablishment of an altar in Israel or a human heart. Then we go through a 57-year gap, and Ezra shows up. Ezra is working in a team, and he begins to reform the people. He is addressing their mind, will, and emotions, the very soul of the nation. Then we go through a 12-year gap. Now Ezra and Nehemiah are united together and working in an even larger team to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and establish the strength of the nation. After their time period, we enter into probably the book of Malachi, which is the last of the prophetic writings. And then Jesus himself enters into the work of Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, and Joshua, and it is there in that temple that he shows up and makes his announcement. You already know that these three waves of return can be correlated to the three parts of man, the heart, the soul, and the body. Additionally, you are aware that the law addresses the heart, the prophets warn the soul, and the writings inform the strength of a man. Let's refresh a few basic scriptural tenets in that regard. This is Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, strength. You see, Adonai chose the nation of Israel and promised them that they would love him with all their heart, soul, and strength. The very design of the Tanakh is set up with three sections that correspond to these promises. So consider this passage from the law which addresses the human heart. This is Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29. Oh! <laughs> oh! Oh! Sign, sealed, delivered! I'm yours! Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. Guys, the Yetzirah is the prevailing condition in the hearts of men. That's the truth. The law is intended to show us the correct way to incline our hearts. Additionally, the law helps us identify each of the evil inclinations in our hearts that are revealed by comparison with the character of God. Zerubbabel and Joshua reestablished the altar in Israel which is what happens when a man's heart is permeated with the law of God. Yeah. Quite simply, we learn what must die and what must live. This process requires total trust in Adonai because of human inability to perform the righteous deeds that we desire to do for him. Consider this passage from the prophets, which do what? Warn the soul. Isaiah 38, 15 through 17. But what can I say? He has spoken to me, and he himself has done this. 
I will walk humbly all my years because of this anguish of my soul. Yeah. Lord, by such things men live, and my spirit finds life in them too. You restored me to health, and let me live. Hallelujah. Yes. Surely it was for my benefit that I suffered such anguish. Amen. In your love you kept me from the pit of destruction. You have put all my sins behind your back. The mind, will, and emotions of men are inherently flawed. Yep. The prophetic warnings in the Nevi'im teach us to make adjustments. Come on. They are as anguishing as they are afflicting. Amen. <laughs> now in the prophets we find both the constant waywardness of men's souls and also the continual promises of God's loving intervention to reform men's hearts. Yeah. When Ezra and his team showed up in the second wave, they taught the people how to evaluate their souls and encourage reform that can only be attained through trusting Adonai for supernatural change. Adonai is the only real cure for the waywardness of men's souls. Yeah. Yeah. Is that true? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Let's consider a passage from the writings, which is a definitive statement on the strength of a man. Oh, yeah. Psalm 18.1. I love you, O Lord, my strength. Yeah. yeah. There it is. There it is. There's a certain appreciation that gets developed for just succinct clarity. Yeah. Yeah. This definitive statement is that men do not possess any moral strength of their own. Yeah. Right. When men are left to their own inclination of their hearts and waywardness of their souls, well, men only apply their strength to rebellion and sin. Yeah. The third wave of return to the Lord under Nehemiah and Ezra demonstrates sincere renewal of the existing covenant between God and Israel. Yes. This was meant to establish the strength of the nation. However, tonight, you will notice that no amount, somebody say no amount. No, no amount. Of commitment on the part of a human being provides the strength needed for covenantal obedience. Come on. Yeah. The only true hope for the strength of a man is found in the loving kindness of Adonai. Yeah. In synopsis, your heart can be dedicated to the Lord. Your soul can be warned in advance by the word of the prophets. And you still will not possess the strength to walk in obedience to the requirements of the covenant. That's true. This binds all men over to disobedience so that Adonai might have mercy on them all. Amen. The hope of Israel was in the Lord's salvation and not in their own performance. Come on. This will become abundantly clear this evening. Here's a slide to prepare you for the structure of chapter 9 and 10 that you will encounter this evening. It's called covenantal structure. The material in chapter 9, verse 5 through 1039, follows the normal covenant form used in the ancient Near East. It begins in verses 9 through 6 with a preamble that identifies the parties. Then in verses 9 or chapter 9 verse 7 through 37, there's a historical prologue, a kind of recounting of how we've done thus far in the covenant. <laughs> then there is an acceptance of the covenant by both parties listed in chapter 9 verse 38 through chapter 10, verse 29. Then there is kind of an addendum, addendum, stipulations, 
these areas in the past have not done so well. So we are highlighting them for the purpose of making sure that we do better with them in the future. Amen. We are telling you these things in advance because the three waves of return are culminating into an all-out effort to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and soul. You will see the highest level of commitment that human beings can produce within themselves. Moreover, in the coming weeks, you will see their failure to keep these commitments. <laughs> yeah. This is the central issue. Yep. Even believers who are committed, heart, soul, and body, they are completely dependent upon Adonai's loving kindness to cover over their own inability to perform genuine righteousness. Ooh, let's talk about that loving kindness for a moment. Yes, Lord. Our next slide is entitled, Eight Times Hesed in Ezra Nehemiah. It actually appears eight times in this book. In Ezra 3, 11, Ezra 7, 28, Ezra 9, 9, Nehemiah 1, 5, Nehemiah 9, both verse 17 and 32, and also twice in Nehemiah 13, verse 14 and 22. The constant mention of the hesed of God expressed toward his nation Israel is indicative of the dependency of the nation of Adonai. Yeah. They were dependent on Adonai. Yeah. No generation is ever able to hold up their end of the covenant without the empowerment of Adonai. Yeah. The word has said is preached about often. We will give that to you. However, few have taken the time to examine its actual meaning and the implications of that said meaning. Do y'all want to do that? Yeah. yeah. Look at this definition of chesed. <laughs> A little stronger. A little stronger. <laughs> means joint obligation, loyalty, Faithfulness, favor, Ooh. goodness, yeah. graciousness, on, godly achievement, <laughs> proofs of mercy. Oh. So as you're looking at this slide, what, with these definitions in mind, that means Hesed expresses God's portion of the joint obligation to the covenant that he made with the people of Israel. Just continuing down, Hesed expresses the loyalty of God. Mm. To the people of Israel. Yeah. Because he made a covenant with them. Hasad expresses the faithfulness of God. To the people of Israel. Because he chose them. Look we didn't make this up. This comes from the most esteemed lexicon. That anybody has ever produced. The Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon. Of the Older Testament abbreviated. Halid. Hasad expresses the favor of God. Towards the people of Israel. Since he is the one. That singled them out of all nations on earth. Yeah. Hesed expresses the goodness of God to the people of Israel. Precisely because they are uniquely his people. Amen. Remember this is repeated eight times in the book we're studying. Hesed expresses the graciousness of God to the people of Israel throughout all generations. Ooh. Chesed expresses the godly achievement of Adonai as he keeps covenant faithfulness with Israel. When we say godly achievement, it sounds strange to call God godly, doesn't it? Yeah. It's because he's the only one that properly chesed. 
He's the only one that keeps proper covenant loyalty. Come on now. Finally, Chesed is the proof of continued mercy unto Israel upon whom the Lord set his favor. Oh, that is awesome. Amen. There is a ubiquitous and entirely false assumption that is frequently made by Christians. The false concept is that Jews attempted to be saved by works. And Christians, well, Christians are saved by faith. This may have been true of some Judaizing influences in the first century, but it is demonstrably false of the Jewish people as a whole, especially in Ezra and Nehemiah. Tonight, consider the concept of mercy that is demonstrated in our text. Let's look at mercy in Nehemiah chapter 9. Let's take our first one, verses 17 and 19. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. 927. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies, who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. According to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. One more verse ahead in 28. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet, when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And our last one, 931. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are gracious and merciful, God. Thanks, it should be abundantly clear to you that the congregation in Ezra and Nehemiah is appealing to the mercies of God that are expressed in his hased for Israel. They are painfully aware, as we all should be, of their inability to keep the covenant as any people could be. However, they are relying on the hased and mercy of Adonai. He, and only he, can save them from their own sinful inability. The next concept that has tainted the Christian view of biblical Judaism is the thought that Adonai eventually gave up on Israel, or replaced them with a more faithful people, usually that being Christians. Not only is this willful suspension of disbelief regarding your own ability to be faithful, but it also ignores the plain language of the text itself. Israel is not, and never has been, forsaken. Let's go through that together so that we don't share something in common with Islam. Are you ready for Ezra 9-9? For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery. Oh yeah, there should be a better amen for that. But he has extended to us steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. Then in Nehemiah 9, beginning in verse 17, 
They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in chesed, and did not forsake them, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf, and said, This is your God, who brought you up out of Egypt, and had committed great, wow, blasphemies. You, in your great mercies, did not forsake them. Amen. In the wilderness, the pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they should go. Nehemiah 9.31 Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Look, when you get the proper, the proper perspective on the promises of God, the nation they were given to, and the nature of Adonai's chesed expressed towards them, then you will begin to see the covenant for what it actually is, a covenant of love. Look at this next slide. Seven times in the Tanakh, the law is called the covenant of love. In Deuteronomy 7, verse 9, Deuteronomy 7, 12, 1 Kings 8.23, 2 Chronicles 6.14, Nehemiah 1.5, Nehemiah 9.32-33, our text tonight, and Daniel 9.4-5. Let's start out with reading Deuteronomy 7.9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is a faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. So starting with Moses, he called Adonai's covenant a covenant of love. Let's take our next one. It's a mere three verses later. Deuteronomy 7.12. If you pay attention to these laws and are careful to follow them, then the Lord your God will keep his covenant of love with you as he swore to your forefathers. So... How did Moses refer to the covenant again? Covenant of love. love. Yeah. Let's take another one. 1 Kings 8, verse 23. And said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You who keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. Here Solomon referred to the covenant as a covenant of love. Now, just in case you thought that was a one-off from Solomon, mm-hmm. we have a man named Ezra who chronicled Solomon's words in 2 Chronicles 6.14. He said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth. You who keep your covenant, covenant of, of love. love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. So how did Solomon refer to the covenant? Covenant of love. Well... Let's look at the opening of Nehemiah. This is Nehemiah 1.5. Then I said, O Yahweh, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps 
his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Ezra records the covenant as a covenant of love at the beginning of the book of Nehemiah. Our sixth occurrence, Nehemiah 9, 32 through 33. Now, therefore, O our God, the great, mighty, and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come upon us, upon our kings and leaders, upon our priests and prophets, upon our fathers and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have been just, you have acted faithfully while we did wrong. So how does the book of Nehemiah refer to the covenant? Let's read the seventh one together from Daniel chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. Guys, even in the chapter that details the redemptive history of Israel in advance, even when living in the time of Gentile trampling, Daniel, the man of God, calls the covenant a covenant of love. That actually makes seven times. A perfect seven. God's favorite number. And if that is not enough, then you guys just weren't listening. (laughs) Or maybe you just don't want to unlearn some old teachings that you picked up before you got here. No, you guys are getting it. It's a covenant of love. It always has been and it always will be. So as we read the text tonight, be mindful of the historic positioning of a nation that has recognized their own inability but has that, but that earnestly desires Yahweh's salvation as they endeavor to do his commands. You may discover that their position is not entirely different from your own position in history. Wow. As we wait for the final redemption, redemption of our bodies and the release from bondage to our own sinful nature. Amen. Now, before we jump into the text and Miss Cass reads, I'm going to need Caleb Brown to stand up like the powerful oh, yeah. man of God he is. Yeah. Let's pray together as we begin. Oh, yeah. Lord, we love you. We thank you, God. Lord, you are a good God, merciful, rich in love, God. And we are relying on your mercy, God, as we lay ourselves on the altar. Lord, we have sinned. Lord, but we come in repentance, in the hope of your salvation, God. Save us, your children, God. We love you, our Father. God, we thank you for tonight, Lord, and open up our minds to your words. So as Miss Cassidy reads this, you should be reflecting on how similar your position is to the men that we're reading about. We're not in different dispensations. We're not in different circumstances even. We all have the same inability in our strength to complete faithful obligations that God has given us. Come on. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. 
Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law the Lord their God of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, and spent another quarter in confession and in worshiping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs were the Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabania, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kanani, who call who called with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, and Pethaliah, and said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry in the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire, to give them life on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai, you spoke to them from heaven, you gave them regulations and laws that are just and right, and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath, and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For forty years you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms and nations allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. 
They took over the country of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their sons as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land that you told their daughters to enter and possess. Their sons went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You handed the Canaanites over to them, along with their kings and the peoples of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their Come enemies. On, yeah. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven, and in your compassion you delivered them time after time. You warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances by which a man will live if he obeys them. Stubbornly they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you admonished them through your prophets. Yet they paid no attention, so you handed them over to the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Amen. Now therefore, O our God, the great, mighty, and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come upon us, upon our kings and leaders, upon our priests and prophets, upon our fathers and all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or to the warnings you gave them. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. Wow. In view of all of this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are fixing their seals to it. Those who sealed it were Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Hashur, Amariah, Machijah, Hattush, Shabaniah, Malak, Haram, Merimah, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Benjamin, Maaziah, Bilgai, and Shemaiah. These were the priests, the Levites, Jeshua, son of Azaniah, Benui, of the sons of Hinnadad, Cadmiel, and their associates, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kalida, Paliah, 
Hanan, Micah, Reho, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherebiah, Shabaniah, Hodiah, Bani, and Benui. The leaders of the people, Parosh, Pahath, Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Buni, Asgad, Bibai, Adonijah, Bigvi, Adon, Atur, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashum, Bezai, Harith, Anathoth, Nabai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hazir, Meshesazabel, Zadok, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Aniah, Hoshia, Hananiah, Hashu, Halohesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rahum, Hashabana, Maasiah, Ahiah, Hanan, Anan, Malak, Harum, and Baana. The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with the their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand, all these now join their brothers, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. We will assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbaths, new moon festivals, and appointed feasts, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God to the priests the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all of our trees, and of our new wine and oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes. And the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and oil to the storeroom where the articles for the sanctuary are kept, and where the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the singers stay. We will not neglect the house of our God. Amen. Saints, it's an extraordinary thing. We've come on quite the journey together up to this point. We were together reading about the very first return. But how much further did they have to go after they actually reached the land of Israel? You just heard they're reflecting on their history and they're making vows unto God together to carry this out properly. 
This text this evening will inform our future work, our future study, and in each one of us should promote a greater trust in Adonai. So as we pick up in verse 1, where Brother Linton will carry it on from here on out, listen to the historical narrative and as it applies to you personally. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. This date is peculiar in the biblical record, the 24th day. For that reason, many commentators suggest that there was an error in the way that Israel kept the feast of the seventh month. They suggest that people began their celebrations late, and this extended the feast beyond the 22nd, when tabernacles would normally end. We want to say unequivocally, they are wrong. The preceding chapter makes it explicitly and abundantly clear that Israel was careful to keep tabernacles exactly as was prescribed in the law. The propensity of commentators to interject negativity on the part of Israel into the text is truly astounding. It's what they naturally gravitate towards. What is actually happening in the text is really quite beautiful. Before we explain, though, we would like to read a Talmudic excerpt to you. Y'all ready for it? An excerpt from the Talmud. Said Rabbi Yudin, a verse of the scripture supports the position stated by associates. Now on the 24th day of this month, that's Tishri after Sukkot, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth upon their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins. Now why is it not said that they did so on the 23rd, since Sukkot ends on the 22nd? It was because of the continuing celebration of the meal of the festival of Sukkot, which the people observed prior to that day. So the day after the festival ended was deemed a continuation of the celebration of the festival, And on this account, the day of sackcloth and mourning was postponed until the 24th. The same reasoning applies to Gentile festivals. Now what you just heard is a discussion amongst Jews in antiquity where they are asking the same question that we're asking. What I want you to know is that Israel kept the feast days correctly and it is forbidden to mourn during the Feast of Tabernacles. What is happening here is that the feast day was completed and then the nation embarked on a renewal and a recommitment to the covenant that Adonai made with their forefathers. That is why the chapters are structured in the form of a covenant. It is also why they began in repentance. So to set the scene, it is after Israel has walked through the redemptive feast and they've become more profoundly aware that Adonai has been good to them while they themselves have been guilty of unfaithfulness, and we're reading about their response to that revelation. Let's pick up in verse 2. Those Israelite descendants have separated themselves from all borders. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. Now this verse may strike you as odd. It could even seem non-inclusive or anti-Christian when you are reading that they separated themselves from all foreigners. However, 
those feelings fail to grasp the exclusive nature of the covenant Adonai made with Israel. We want to consider a few passages on the exclusive nature of the covenant. Starting in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Adonai always intended to bless every nation on earth, and thus all men, through Abram. But that cannot occur until Israel themselves has become all that Adonai said they would be. Israel is the beginning and the fulcrum upon which Adonai moves all of humanity. Let's listen to Deuteronomy 4.7. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? You see, the witness of Adonai among the nations in the world is dependent. Say dependent. Dependent. It is dependent upon the nations being able to view Israel in right relationship with God. Come on. The reason that we're saying that is the setting of that verse is that when Israel is walking in obedience to the law that they are given, the nations around will take note and ask questions about Yahweh. The text is not just Israel-centric, it is Israel-dependent. That's right. Look how Deuteronomy 4, verse 32, continues to build on this concept. Ask now about the former days, long before your time, from the day God created human beings on the earth. Ask from one end of the heavens to the other. Has anything so great as this ever happened? Or has anything like it ever been heard of? Has any other people heard the voice of God speaking out of fire as you have and live? (laughs) Has any God ever tried to take for himself one nation out of another nation by testings, by signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, or by great and awesome deeds like all the things the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord is God. Besides him, there is no other. From heaven, he made you hear his voice to discipline you. On earth, he showed you his great fire, and you heard his words from out of the fire. Because he loved your ancestors and chose their descendants after them, he brought you out of Egypt. By his presence and his great strength. To drive out before you nations greater and stronger than you. And to bring you into their land to give it to you for for your inheritance as it is today. So the redemptive plan for the nations of the world. All of the nations must begin with Israel being the inheritance of Yahweh. Come on. This is what others are grafted into. The nations cannot be grafted into something that was not done for Israel first and foremost. Let's take one from the book of Consolation. Jeremiah 31, 
1 through 4. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel. Yeah. And they will be my people. Yeah. This is what the Lord says. The people who survive the sword will find favor in the wilderness. I will come to give them rest, give rest to Israel. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Come on. Come on. I have drawn you Ooh. with unfailing kindness. Yes. I will build you up again. Yes. And you, virgin Israel, will be rebuilt. Yes. Again, you will take up your timbrels. Mm. Hallelujah. Yeah. And go out and dance with the joyful. So you learned in Jeremiah, your Jeremiah studies that even the newer covenant is with Israel before any other nation. The separation from other nations in our chapter tonight is like getting your house in order before attempting to help your neighbor with theirs. There must be a renewed covenant with Israel for others to be grafted into. Oh, come on. Is that good, saints? Yes. Psalm 147 continues this concept in the writings. Verse 19 says, He has revealed His word to Jacob, His laws and decrees to Israel. He has done this for no other nation. They do not know His laws. Praise the Lord. (laughs) It is from Israel, the priestly nation, that all other nations will be blessed through. This is what God stated to Abram, and this is why Israel separated from all foreigners on the day of their covenant renewal and recommitment. Wouldn't it be a beautiful thing if today's evangelists actually took time to renew their covenant before they attempted to represent it to other people? Uh, yes. Yeah, it really would, wouldn't it? Yeah. Hey, let's pick up in verse 3. <laughs> they stood where they, where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And spent another quarter in confession and worshiping the Lord, their God. Wow. I see all of our people making a concerted effort tonight to stay awake. (laughs) Now, my math's never been that good. I was raised in Louisiana, but at least it was not Mississippi. (laughs) And when I think of a a quarter of a day, I figure there's about 12 hours in a day, so we must be talking about three hours. Maybe that's where we've been going wrong. Our reading of the word... In these Bible studies, generally only takes about two hours. Perhaps we should consider a three-hour minimum. Now, we're just joking. Tonight, we're not going to do that. Because if we did do that, they didn't just read the Word for three hours. They also confessed their sin for three hours. We're quite sure that that's not enough time to make it all the way through in this room. Yeah? Let's look at the impact of God's word on the people. The word of God had a tremendous impact on the restoration community. It pointed the people to their sin in chapter 8, verse 9. It led them to worship, chapter 8, verse 12 and 14. And it gave them great joy. Yeah! Yeah! In chapter 8, verse 17. Now... The word led to their confession of sin. Hallelujah. You see, it's easy to be enamored with the teaching of the word. Many are entertained by it, but the true test is that the word penetrates the human heart yeah. and convicts of sin. Yeah. This should be followed 
by confession and action-based repentance. Amen. Oh, there should be more amens for that. Amen. Check out 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, your confession provides the pathway to see his faithfulness. Your confession provides the pathway to see his justice. Your confession provides the pathway to see his forgiveness and also to see his cleansing. Amen. Amen. That is not a newer covenant principle. The character of Yahweh is unchanging. And this is how he has always dealt with his people. The other aspect is that you only know this to be true because it is how he dealt with Israel and a Jewish apostle recording the teaching for you in 1 John. Let's pick up in verse 4. Standing on the stairs were the Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Cherubiah, Bani, and Kenani. Who, all, who called with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah, yeah. said, Stand up yeah. and praise the Lord your Come God. On. Come on! Who is from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You can't read these verses without honing in on the plural unity that is present between these leaders. Guys, they have taken their stand to renew and recommit the entire nation back to the Lord. Next, notice that they command the nation to do just what they are doing. Just like them. Stand up and praise the Lord your God because that's what the leaders are doing. Confession is only as good as this standing up part, though. Repentance is demonstrated in the actions following your own awareness of sin. It is not demonstrated through self-abasement alone. It's also interesting to note that Ezra and Nehemiah are not listed among the leaders present here on the stage. Isn't that curious? The actions of Ezra and Nehemiah demonstrated and instigated the actions of those who would lead Israel into the new generations, i.e. this group of men right here. This reminds us of the New Testament epistles that so often address the people rather than the leaders. They're preparing the next generation of leaders and officers that are coming up behind them. Let's continue in verse 6. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens and even the highest heaven, and all their starry hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. Come on, multitudes. So verses 5 and 6 introduce the parties in the renewal covenant. The leaders represent the nation, and the other party in the covenant is the creator of the heavens and the earth, who gives life to everything and is worshipped by the multitudes of heaven. Now, as we go to verse 7, we are entering into the historical prologue. This will detail each party's actions in the covenant up to this point. Throughout this recounting, be mindful of the continual ongoing mercy of Adonai. Verse 7. 
You are the Lord God, who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur, the Chaldees, and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you, and you made a covenant with him to give his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. All right, somebody say it with me. Sign, sign, seal, deliver. You're going to notice again and again that Adonai is faithful to every promise that he has made. We can't take the time to enumerate each nuance, but you should note the way this recounting starts with Abraham. Abraham. And then it seamlessly moves into the Mosaic period. We say this because theologians and dispensationalists like to divide these things in extremely unhealthy ways. That's true. From the historical perspective of Ezra Nehemiah, there is one covenant Amen. that began in the time of Abraham and extends through each group up to their time period. Oh, yeah. And they're noting God has been faithful to the one covenant. Amen. This does not mean that there are not other facets that were revealed over time but rather that everything revealed should be seen within the context of the promise to Abraham and his offspring. Amen. Let's pick up in verse 9. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself. Who made that name? divided the sea before them, so that they passed through it on dry ground. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths, like a stone into mighty waters. Come on. I love these verses for so many reasons. In these verses, the people are acknowledging that God's name among the nations is intrinsically linked to the people of Israel because he's the one that chose to bring them out of Israel. So they're linked forever, much like a married couple. Moreover, that Israel's deliverance was coincided by Egypt's destruction. He didn't just save them, he also ruined a nation. When I read that line, they sank like stones. You know, that's really hard to do if this was just a shallow water crossing. (laughs) It's hard to do if winds just push back the water a little bit and they walk through ankle deep. Because you can't sink like a stone in ankle deep water. God's delivering acts of Israel helped to define how he would be viewed amongst all nations, and they will continue to do so. Come on. Verse 12. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire, to give them light on the way they were to take. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right, and decrees and commands that are good. Wow. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. So notice the things that the people say about the law and also what they do not say. The law is called just and right. They are called commands that are good. It is even presented in parallel with the water and manna that sustain life. 
The law is not referred to as salvation. The salvation of Israel was solely the work of Adonai and all of his delivering power. Ooh, that's good. You see, the point of recapping these events from the people's perspective is to acknowledge that Adonai has been keeping the covenant. Amen. You know the two part, the two parties of the covenant? Well, one of them has been keeping the covenant. Yeah. You will notice that as a group, they then begin to confess their own inability to keep the covenant. Well, no. Pick up in verse 16. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiven God, Amen. gracious and compassionate, Amen. Amen. Come on. Anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you do not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. We had a good time reading through this part yeah. of the passage. Yeah. We talked about it a bunch. We, we put together a slide for you to help you kind of dissect a little bit. And just up front, granted, this is a little bit complicated of a slide and commentary. So pay careful attention as I read it to you. This is from Keel and Delitch, their commentary on this passage right here. Words are accumulated to describe the stiff-necked resistance of the people, as above, verse 10. They hardened their necks. You guys remember that from the text that we just read? They say that this refers to Exodus 32, verse 9, Exodus 33, verse 3, and Exodus 34, verse 9. They're actually quoting several different chapters of Exodus with this one Hebrew phrase. And therefore already alludes to the worship of the golden calf at Sinai, mentioned in verse 18. While in verse 17, the second great rebellion of the people at Kadesh, on the borders of the promised land, Numbers 14 is contemplated. You heard that in the passage. The repetition of the expression, they hardened their hearts, shows that a second grievous transgression is already spoken of in verse 17. They're enumerating for us that although there are just several phrases in here about these grievous transgressions, it's actually pointing to a bunch of Israel's history in these chapters. This is made even clearer by the next clause, and you can see that on the screen there, which is taken almost verbally from Numbers 14, verse 4. They said one to another, let us make a captain and return to Egypt. The notion being merely enhanced here by the addition of that phrase to their bondage. So we are quite aware that this slide is complicated. But let us boil it down for you in just a couple sentences here. The people of Israel are recounting all of the different ways throughout their history, especially in this fo focus point here, that Adonai has been faithful even in the midst of Israel's continued, and even prolific at times, waywardness. Yeah. Yeah. The point is that Adonai is the one that keeps his side of the covenant. Amen. He keeps his chesed, his covenant loyalty, even when the people on the other side of this covenant are acting unfaithfully. Look, 
let me let me see if I can help you with it because you may not be aware of the chronology issues that are here. On Monday, they were unfaithful, even with a golden calf. On Tuesday, they were further unfaithful. On Wednesday, they were further unfaithful. On Thursday, they appointed a leader for rebellion. But the astounding point is that even with the golden calf, they were unfaithful. And and the reason that the chronology is presented the way that it is is because this is an unthinkable thing to make a golden calf and call it Yahweh. Numbers 14.4 occurs way after it, but it's presented before it so that we can make an explanation point out of it. Yeah, so as a reminder as to why the golden calf is like a big old exclamation point in the narrative, consider what you already know about chiastic structures from the book of Exodus. Check out this slide. So they have the glory of the Lord on Mount Sinai. Then they are given building instructions. Then Shabbat instructions. Given the original tablets. Then gasp. The law is broken, and a calf is worshipped as God. But the tablets get restored. Yes! Shabbat is implemented. Yes! The building is completed. Yes! And the glory of the Lord is within Israel. So this reference from Exodus 24 through 40 serves to illustrate two principles simultaneously that we're seeing in uh, Nehemiah 9. First, the people are acknowledging the greatest kind of sin, blasphemy. And second, the people are remembering that the tablets were still restored. Hallelujah! The Shabbat still implemented. Yes! The tabernacle still completed. Praise God! And the glory of the Lord still enveloped Israel. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Verse 19. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day, the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years, you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them the the kingdoms and nations, allotting you gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. Amen. They took over the country of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their sons as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you wow. brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. Yeah. So once again, notice the difference between segmenting covenants, as most theologians and denominational churches do, Yeah. And this presentation, verse 7 began this discourse with a mention of Abram. We have moved forward in history 4,500 years and are approaching the time of Joshua's conquest. The specific wording of verse 23, though, is their sons as numerous as the stars in the sky, and you brought them into the land. The view being expressed is one of continuation one of God's faithfulness to the original covenant being fulfilled rather than segmentation. In other words, what began with Abram extended through the time of Moses and God was faithful to deliver. Their sons went in and took possession of the land. 
You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You handed the Canaanites over to them, along with their kings and the peoples of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They reveled in your great goodness. Come on. Ate to the full, well nourished, reveled in your goodness. That really could describe you. The pattern being established is that Adonai keeps his promises perfectly. He's the example of chesed. The portion of the historical prologue that we just read has taken us through the time of Joshua and the conquest of the land, even putting foot on the neck of the enemy. The people are acknowledging that it is their ancestors who reveled in the great goodness of Adonai. However, true to the pattern displayed in Nehemiah, they're going to move on to confess their own inability to walk with him faithfully. Let's pick up in 26 and go through 27. But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven, you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverance. Yes! You rescued them from the hand of their enemies. Did you hear in, the, in his great compassion, he gave them deliverers? Yeah. yeah. You see, our historical prologue is now in the time of the judges. And again, the faithfulness of Adonai is being highlighted. Again, they will move to speak of their own culpability in breaking the covenant as we continue in verse 28. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. Amen. You warned them to return to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, by which a man will live if he obeys them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked, and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them. By your spirit, you admonished them through your prophets. Yet they paid no attention, so you handed them over to the neighboring peoples. As we're reading through this historical narrative, are you guys picking up the pattern that's in this chapter? Yes. This part, verses 28 through 30 that we just read, this is part of the historical prologue showing the faithfulness of Adonai both to his word and to his people. The actions of Adonai were consistent with the stipulations in the covenant regarding disobedience from the nation. During the time of the kings, they were appropriately put under Gentile powers. This was for discipline for their own unfaithfulness. Look what happens in verse 31. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them Praise God. or Amen. abandon them. Amen. For yeah. you are a gracious Amen. and merciful God. Amen. Yes. Yes. Well, that sounds like some sin delivered from you. Church, this verse is key to understanding who God is. His nation is admittedly and continuously wayward, going their own way. 
and Adonai disciplines. Adonai warns. And Adonai never abandons the nation that he chose. Come on. Adonai is Hesed and will work within the nation to bring about his precious promises. Amen. Now the next sentence brings us up to the present historical time. Although the people continue to reflect on their own historical unfaithfulness and the goodness of God. Verse 32. Now therefore, O our God, the great, mighty, and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes. The hardship that has come upon us, upon our kings and leaders, upon our priests and prophets, upon our fathers and all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. So each of you are aware that the Assyrian captivity of the northern kingdom came first, as in before Babylon. It was then followed by the Babylonian captivity of the southern kingdom. However, in the minds of the 12 tribes present in Ezra and Nehemiah's day, it is all considered one event. They no longer see the divisions that were temporary in their nation. They're speaking about the things that came on them. They are one people that have been equally unfaithful before their God. No longer pointing fingers. Look, the point is further illustrated in the coming verses. We want you to pay special attention, as Brother Linton reads, to the pronouns, because they are telling of how they view national Israel. So I, I can tell that Cassidy got it. I can tell that Brother Treister got it. I want to help the rest of you as we go through this. They're no longer looking at the northern kingdom going, they went into Assyria. The southern kingdom is no longer laughing, going, the other kingdom went into Babylon. Instead, listen to these pronouns, and with each one, Linton will emphasize the pronoun. In all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully, while we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the warnings you gave them. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today. Slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so they could eat its fruit and the, and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. Could you hear it? Yes. yes. The summation of the historical prologue is that Adonai has indeed been entirely faithful. The 12 tribes are confessing in terms like we, us, our, we have been unfaithful. Please also note, they're not asking for freedom from the kings of Persia. Nowhere in here is that request present. They seem to understand, probably from reading Daniel chapter 2, that it was predicted and prescribed by God that Israel would experience subjugation until the restoration of the kingdom of God after the trampling upon them by Gentiles. 
That is in the book of Deuteronomy. And they are taking full acceptance of it. Yeah. Now let's do verse 38. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Mm. Ah, yeah! Say it with me. Say, seal, deliver, I'm <laughs> Look, the truth is that this covenant was already in effect. The covenant was already in effect, and they just went through it all. It was already in writing. However, the leaders, Levites, and priests desired to rededicate. They desired to recommit. They desired to renew the covenant and physically put their names and seals on a written copy of rededication. Ooh, that's good. Have you ever contemplated the goodness and faithfulness of Adonai in contrast with your own performance? Yes. Oh, no, we want an answer from everybody in this room. How about another question? Have you signed a covenant written in Messiah's blood, sealed it with your own verbal oath? Yes. I will serve you, Yeshua, King of Kings. Well, do you still need to be delivered? So that you can yes. deliver yes. on your promise? Yes. Yes. Did you think that sign, sealed, and delivered meant that it's already done? No, no you are signed, you are sealed, and you still need to be delivered. Amen. Adonai will have to strengthen you so you can deliver on your part of the covenant. Amen. Now, did we hear someone in the crowd say... Amen. I'm pretty sure oh, yes. Timo did it. Yeah. <laughs> Guys, amen. Th that is where the word amana or agreement comes from in this passage. Guys, this is the word amen. They made a binding, listen, they made a binding amen and put it in writing. Let's put our slide back on the screen. Come on, guys. Do you remember this? Guys, the word amen in the Hebrew behind it has all of these meanings here. Look at it. Believe, train, foster father, artist, skilled workman, right hand, verify, true, faithful, truly. Look at this. Do you see at 11 o'clock up there? The word faith? Yeah, that's circled because that is the word that is in our passage in the scripture oh, tonight. They made a binding amen. They made a binding faith. They made a binding so be it unto God and put it in writing. And finally, they made a binding may this prayer come true. Church, these people have just recounted their entire history of inability to perform the requirements of the covenant. And yet, what is their response to all of this? What is their response to all of their history? For thousands of years, in faith, they choose to make a declaration in front of the presence of God Almighty and their brothers that they will still commit to strive for the holy requirements of their God. Now, we're about to revisit a psalm that we started with. But before we do, 
I just, I've been pastoring a long time. Well, I can't, I can't do it anyway. I don't want to be a fake Christian, so I, you know, I might as well just withdraw and not try. You pansy coward. Yeah. You look at your inability and say he is able. Come on. I will put my amen on the yeah. line right yeah. now. I will stand up and sign it knowing only he can fulfill it. I trust my God. That is what they are doing. Amen. Now, as we go to one of the Psalms that Ezra wrote, why I love Psalms and Proverbs is because they are seasons written in sentences by men who experience Adonai's character. So as if, with that in mind, consider that Ezra had experienced the goodness of God, and it gave him the power to write verse 166 of Psalm 119. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commands. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Look, Bain's going to help you with this. I want to share my testimony. You don't have a testimony. Your testimony has been that you screw it up. That's your testimony. He has a testimony. He's been faithful when you have not. I love your testimonies. When you look at your testimony and I will do the commands and I will do X, Y, and Z to validate my faith, that is a cry for legalism. Here in Psalm 119, it is not a cry for legalism. It's an appeal to faith in God, in Adonai. That's what Ezra's doing. This is the expression of the desire to do what's right while you wait for Adonai to save you. Come on. We're going to continue in verse 169. But I want you to hold in your mind this began with I hope for your salvation. It's almost as if the Apostle Paul wrote about you do not hope for things that you already have. See, they're possessing something by faith. Like men of old, they had a title deed to the coming salvation of Yahweh while they obeyed His righteous decrees. 69 says, let my cry come before you. Well, they're in an agonizing state of their own inability and having to trust, believing in faith. God hears their cry. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. Saints, you can't learn something that you already have down in path. He's asking for a greater understanding. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to supernaturally easer me in the only way that God can do. For I have chosen your precepts. This is the cry of a people who want to do what is right. And are also pleading, crying because of their overwhelming awareness that only Adonai can help them live righteously. The choice to follow the precepts or the law of the Lord is the prerequisite for real empowerment to do what the law says. Have any of you found that there's good that you want to do and you do the evil that you do not want to do? That is the prerequisite for being empowered. If you're discouraged and you hate your own behavior, that is the broken and contrite poorness of spirit that cries out to the Father 
and he will fill you with righteousness. He will help you. Look at Psalm 119, verse 174. I long for your salvation. Wow. Too often Christians present it as I got saved. That is not biblical. At least it's only one third of the biblical picture. You got saved. You are still being saved. And you yet need to be saved in the future. I long for your salvation, O Lord. And, somebody say and. And. Your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you. Let your rules help me. The law is an aid. It is a help. It shows you where you need Adonai. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. Come find me, Lord. Hey, baby, I'm yours. Signed, sealed, and delivered. I do not forget your commandments. Church, before any person in this room judges this nation critically, meaning Israel, we must pick up the mirror of the word and ask ourselves if we indeed have performed more admirably. You have all of their testimonies plus your own testimonies. We are more culpable, not less. Salvation is and always has been by faith. That's true in the older and the newer testaments. It is one story. Notice who is the first to affix his name and seal to this document. I'm going to give you a hint. For the rest of this book, in chapter 11, chapter 12, and chapter 13, you will see him pastoring the people through their commitment. And it's exactly what you should expect from us as pastors. Let's read verse 1 and get that name. Those who sealed it were Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah. Who was the first to seal it? Nehemiah. God's comfort was the first. And you're going to see how he comforts them in the coming chapters. When necessary, he snatches them bullheaded. When necessary, he will lay hands on them. Whatever it takes, they made a commitment, and he intends to help them keep it. Let's keep going, brother. The governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sarah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Peshur, Amariah, Malchijah, Hattush, Shebaniah, Baluch, Harim, Merimoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Mijamin, Mijamin, man. Mijamin. Mijamin. Bilgah and Shemaiah. These were the priests. The Levites, Jeshua, son of Azaniah. Binui, the son of Hinnadad, Cadmiel, and their associates, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kalita, Pelaiah, Hanan, Micah, Reho, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Binu, the leaders of the peoples, Parosh, Pehath Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Boni, Asgad, Bibai, Adonijah, Bigvai, Adin, Atur, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodai, Hashum, Bezai, Harib, Anathoth, Nebai, Macpishiah, Meshulam, Hezi, Meshemabel, Zadok, Jadua, Pelatia, Hanan, Anai, Hoshea, 
Hananite, Hashub, Helohesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rehum, Hashbanah, Masaiah, Ahiah, Hanan, Anan, Maluk, Harim, and Bani. The rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from their neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand. Aren't you glad he didn't list all the rest of the people? (laughs) All these now join their brothers, the nobles, and bind themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord our God. Verse 29 says, All these now join their brothers. This has Psalm 133 implications, church. Yeah, unity. The whole nation is in unity and desirous of the righteousness of God. The next time we see this kind of event, it will probably usher in the second coming of Christ. Yeah. However, we should work at it now every day. Come on. And pray for this event again in Israel. We want to share a linguistic element with you from our friends at the NET translation team regarding the phrase, with a curse and an oath. This, of course, refers to the book of Deuteronomy and the recommitment of the people to it. Now in writing, for the second time. Look at this slide. Nehemiah 9.29 in the NET says, Hereby participate with their colleagues, the town leaders, and enter into a curse and an oath to adhere to the law of God, which was given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands of the Lord, our Lord, along with his ordinances and statutes. So the translators note here, the expression, a curse and an oath, may be a hendiadus, meaning an oath with penalties. Ooh. It's combining the two words, an oath with penalties. They're not two separate things. They are the same thing. Yes. Right. A curse and an oath. A hendiadus means that there is two words or two concepts separated with an and that should be read as a singular concept. So when it says a curse and an oath, we're talking about an oath with penalties. One thing. The truth is that the very same law, the very same oath or promise contained in the word of God also prescribes penalties for unfaithfulness in that same covenant. This is a formidable, formidable problem for all who desire a covenantal relationship with Adonai. Now, we're going to state this problem very clearly for you right here. Those whose hearts and souls are committed to the covenant of Adonai, well, they still lack the strength to be fully obedient to Adonai. Yeah. This means that all are deserving of a curse. How many? All. Every single one. So, in light of this, we searched through commentaries, both ancient and modern. We looked in the halls of scholarship with very little success as to how this problem is solved. Then, one of our team came across some, you could say, cave drawings. Yeah. Cave drawings that were taken from 
the cave of Adullam. But not the one in Israel, though. The one located in a garage in Sugarland. Oh, yeah. <laughs> These cave drawings and writings were carbon dated all the way back to the year 2005. Wow. They were inscribed on a stone stele on Settler's Way. Here are a few excerpts from what we call Law Dog. Oh, yeah. Take a look at this slide. The expression, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater, comes to mind when I think of the commonly held views of Pauline theology regarding the law. Paul repeatedly emphasized the futility of utilizing or relying on the law for salvation, but that did not mean that Paul didn't love the law and consider himself a law-observing Jew. See Acts 21, 24, 24-14, and 25-8. Christians often take the phrase, not under the law, to mean that the law is completely inoperative and without purpose in our lives. Mm -hmm. I believe that a careful examination of the scriptures as a whole will promote the view that the Christian is not under the curse of the law, meaning its penalties, but that its righteous imperatives remain righteous just as they were during the 1600 years prior to the cross. Galatians 3, 10-11 says... All who rely on observing the laws are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified before God by the law, because the righteous will live by faith. Galatians makes the resounding point that relying on observing the law for salvation brings about the penalties prescribed in the law or the curse. This is because of man's inability to keep the law. Jesus took this curse upon himself. He kept the law perfectly and yet was punished in our place as a lawbreaker. In this way, he removed the penalty of the law. Faithful, trusting in his work and reliance upon his grace are the Christian's hope. Galatians 3.13 says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written... Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. As we move on to other areas of the scripture, I hope to be able to persuade you not to throw out the baby, the law, with the bathwater, the curse of the law. Mm -hmm. In Christ, there is no longer any condemnation caused by man's weakness and inability to keep the law. Through Jesus' work in removing the penalty of the law, the believer is set free from the demand of our death as a result of sin, the law of sin and death and is empowered to keep the righteous requirements of the law, the law of the spirit of life, and our new life Amen. in Christ. Amen. 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 So good. Yeah. Amen. What were you doing in 2005? <laughs> Not good stuff. I have another expert from you that is from the book Law Dog that is just a few pages down and is commenting on genuine, honest interactions with the letter of the text of Ezekiel 36. You'll hear how this develops. This powerful passage addresses the heart of the issue. In that, the law is righteous, but men are not. Romans 7, 12 through 14 continues to expound on that concept. Therefore, no one can be justified by the law, as Romans 3, 28 says. The inability to be justified by the law does not mean that the law is bad, useless, or inoperative. It means that we in and of ourselves, are woefully inadequate. The flaw in the Mosaic Covenant 
was the unspiritual human failings that demanded a penalty, the curse of the law and death, as Romans 6.23 says. While the law beautifully displays the righteous character of God, its curses, sorry, it also reveals the ugly inadequacies of unspiritual man. The divine solution was that God would show himself as holy through Israel by cleansing them in grace, giving them new hearts through faith, and empowering them with the Holy Spirit to follow and keep the laws. This is not the abolishment of the law. It is the fulfillment of the law. Thus, our trust in him or faith in him does not nullify the law, but rather upholds it, which is what Romans 3.31 says. We no longer relate to the law as a fearful taskmaster, ready to punish your disobedience. Instead, we joyfully embrace the righteousness found within the law as empowered by God's Holy Spirit. Every area of shortcoming revealed by the law in us is covered by grace through faith in what Jesus did when Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Ezekiel foresaw this when he said, God would save you from all your uncleanness. This is also how it can be said that someone is not under the law, as in its penalty, but is also not free from God's law, the righteous requirements of God. Saints, when you're contemplating these things, remember, this is not born out of a vacuum. What we preach and teach has been built out of honest wrestling with the word, and it requires that you set aside your preconceived ideas and look at what the text itself says. I don't know. What could that guy know? He was only 25 years old. I'm sure he didn't struggle with sin himself. <laughs> Let's look at Deuteronomy 25:15, 28:15. However, if you do not obey the Lord your God, and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. You may want with all of your heart and soul to follow God's righteous commandments, just as these men in Nehemiah 9 and 10 do. However, you're able, unable to do so completely. This means that you are, in fact, deserving of a curse. These men's names were literally affixed to a written document that itself prescribes a curse. By the way, so were your names, yep. written in the same way. However, in that acknowledgement that you are cursed in your sinful nature, you are still able to trust the Lord to save you anyway. Hallelujah. This is because the curse that you deserve for every act of disobedience has in fact fallen upon God's own righteous Son, who entered into humanity precisely to save Israel because he declared her his bride. Let's pick up in 2 Corinthians 5, 18. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal 
through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Yeah. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But this still begs the question. If your name is written on a document with a seal that prescribes your deserved curse, how does that curse fall upon Jesus and you get freed from the penalty? Your name is on a seal when you signed up to commit to the Lord the rest of your life. You see, your groom gives you his name. Yes! That's how you are free. His name is the only name that has ever qualified for the blessing of the law without the penalties because he committed no sin and he gives you his name. How can there not be hallelujah breaks for that? As this was prophesied about, before this time, Isaiah 62 verse 1 prophesied about this. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet till her righteousness shines out like the dawn, her salvation like a blazing torch. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name. That the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You see, the new name that came through Christ, the Messiah, was prophesied about all the way back in Isaiah 62. This was predicated throughout the prophets, and the apostles themselves verified what the name was. As they testified about Yeshua, they spoke these words in Acts 4.12. Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There's only one who can open the scroll. Now the curse that the people of Ezra Nehemiah's day and that you deserve fell upon Jesus. He then credited you you with his good name. This is salvation and the results are described in Revelation 3 verse 12. You guys ready? Yeah. To him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. The name replacement. Saints, it's also a remiss for the character replacement that we receive in Christ, becoming like him and his father. There will be a day when the full character of Christ is found in his bride. Character will remain. Come on. Revelation continues to paint this picture in chapter 22. Beginning in verse 3. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. For they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. The bride of Christ gets his name, his character, his reputation, his body of works. Her former name 
and her former debts belong to her husband. The bride of Christ is Israel, but you and I have the chance to be grafted into that promise. Now, we're going to have to get back to Nehemiah, but we need to consider one more passage. 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 through 12. With this in mind, we yeah. constantly pray for you, that our God may count you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, we are more responsible to live out the righteousness displayed in the Torah than the men in Nehemiah 9 and 10. They wrote their names on a scroll. They did this with all of their hearts and all of their souls. However, you and I have already been given the name of Christ. Come on! This is a higher obligation, not a lower one. Let's pick up in verse 30, now that we have a new appreciation for the things being considered. We promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or take their daughters for our sons. When the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and will cancel all debts. We assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbath, new moon festivals, and appointed feasts, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring to the house of our God at set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We also assume the responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree. As it is also written in the law, we will bring the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds, and of our flocks to the house of our God, to the, to the priests ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storerooms of the house of our God, to the priests, the first of our ground meal, of our grain offerings, of the fruit of all our trees, and of our new wine and oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. A priest descended from Aaron is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes. And the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God, to the storerooms of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine, and oil to the storerooms where the articles for the sanctuary are kept and where the ministering priests, the gatekeepers, and the singers stay. We will not neglect the house of our God. Amen. Church, we did it. We did Nehemiah 9 Come and 10. Come on. Thank you to our readers. As you might not have realized it, but in that, in that last 
large section of Nehemiah 10 that we read, there's actually the terms of the covenant that are listed and written out for the rest of history and for us to be able to see for the rest of time. We have a slide for you showing you the 16 terms of the covenant. This is from Dake's reference Bible. One, walk in God's law. Yeah. Observe and do all the commandments of the Lord. Yeah. To keep his judgments and his statutes. Not to give their daughters as wives of foreigners. Not to give their sons as husbands of foreigners. Not to buy on the Sabbath. Not to buy on any holy day. To observe the seventh year as one of rest. Keeping the sabbatical year. To pay a third of a shekel each to the temple yearly. To supply wood for the temple. To bring in all the first fruits to the priests. To observe the law of the firstborn. To tithe all the income. To pay the tithe of tithes. Yeah. To bring offerings to the temple. And not to forsake the house of God. Amen. Now, we've got a few chapters left in Ezra and Nehemiah. You, you guys are going to discover in the weeks that we have ahead of us that the people are going to have some real difficulty following these terms of their covenant. It's okay. They're the only ones. <laughs> Looking at this list, contemplating what these men of Israel stood up and decided to commit themselves to. You should turn this on ourselves tonight. What in the world have we stood up and committed ourselves to in the Lord? Pastor Parsons is going to close our time together with a passage. You guys have a couple more minutes? So Paul, a man who was well versed in the law of the Lord, acquainted with the promises to Israel, encouraged his young disciple Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, picking up in verse 8 with these words. He said, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Amen! Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory, that they may bear his name. Verse 11 is great because I can hear all of my pastors ministering to me in this way. Hey, Peyton, here's a trustworthy saying. If we die with him, we will also live with him. Hallelujah! If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful. For he cannot disown himself. And then Paul goes on to say, keep reminding them of these things because there is a propensity to forget how faithful Adonai is. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and it only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. When you bear the name of Jesus Christ, you have no reason to be ashamed. Stand up and represent the word and the promises that he's given to you. 
And then it goes on, avoid godless chatter. Why? Because it's all about Adonai. Yeah. It's all about his faithfulness to his people Israel first, then to us, the Gentile Graftans. He goes on, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly, and we refuse to go with them. Amen. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus, which is the worst name that I've ever read, <laughs> and Philetus, which sounds like a venereal disease, who have wandered away from the truth. They've wandered from the promises of God. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. That's a bad position to be in. Nevertheless, young Timothy, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. The Lord knows who are his and who bear his name. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness because if you turn, you bear his name and he will rescue you time and time again. Yes, yes. Even when you're faithless, he remains faithful. Sign sealed in I've just got one scripture because these men have put forth an incredible truth tonight. So many layers to it and yet so clear for us that we are in fact signed, sealed, and need to be consistently delivered. Because, But we know that we will be because we bear his name. Hallelujah! 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 23 and 24. And I'm going to hand it over to Pastor Matt. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, your whole soul, and your whole body, almost like there's three waves of advancement of the gospel here inside of us, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's my favorite. The one who calls you and give you, gives you his name is faithful. Hallelujah. And he will do it. All that makes me want to say, here I am. So as we pray, we're going to pray with heads held high. With confidence that his spirit is within us. To sanctify our hearts and to make us stand before him holy in his presence. Mighty God, we thank you for your word. Your word that pierces our hearts. Lord, that brings us to the truth of who you are and your spirit inside of us to remind us at all times that we are to stand before you holy and that done by the work of your word inside of us. Lord, we thank you for redeeming us. We thank you for washing us. We thank you for constantly delivering and saving us and being a faithful father that will bring us to completion with you. In Jesus' name yeah. we say, Amen! Amen.